Vocal Majority Podcast. I'm Nick Alexander, and today is July the 4th, a national holiday where we celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, back in 1776. We should also remember our brave forefathers who fought for the freedom that we enjoy today, many of them losing their lives in the Revolutionary War, which lasted from 1765 until 1783. Many of these patriots lost everything in the war and yet still had the courage to sign the famous document that would make us a free country. In today's podcast, we honor members of our group who have served our country. And joining with me today is Frank Eastman, a longtime member of the Vocal Majority and also one of many of our group who have served. So Frank, in what branch did you serve? I was in the Air Force. I enlisted in early 1970, served two tours, Mm -hmm. got out of the Air Force in 1977, and I was an air traffic controller while I was in. Wow, that's interesting. So for our podcast today, what do you have up your sleeve? Well, I start with a visit with Dave Huff, who with his wife Pat are the vocal majority music librarians. To avoid being drafted, Dave enlisted in the Air Force right after graduating from college. Dave, can you tell us how you entered the Air Force? Being in the uh, music education department, I thought, if I've got to go, I might as well be, uh, do something I know and like. So I decided I would audition for a military band. Mm -hmm. I uh, went and auditioned for the uh, Air Force band, and I felt like that's a much higher standard of of band. And where I auditioned, they, they were very nice. They ran me through the ringer, but I was okay because I was a senior trombone player in college, and I was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so they said, okay, you can go anywhere that in the Air Force that needs a, a trombone player stateside. And then after a year or two, they'll transfer you. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, what do you got? He said, well, we got an opening in Wichita Falls. I thought, hmm, Wichita Falls, 
close to home. I said, I'll take it. So they said, okay, here you go. I said, now you're going to go, you'll be uh, recruited and sworn in, go to basic training, and then you will skip technical school because you're going in with a higher uh, rating. I went in with a three level. Right. So I went through basic and all that sort of stuff, went to Wichita Falls and started playing my horn in, in Shepherd Air Force Base, the 761st Air Force Band of the Oil Belt. Every band had a name at that point. Right. And that mm-hmm. was the Band of the Oil Belt, which I thought was appropriate. That base was a technical school where they, they did electronics, jet engine mechanics, and all kinds of things. So we played a parade every day at noon for the changing of the classes, the six o'clock to 12 o'clock class, and then the 12 o'clock to so on and so forth. Right. Uh, and we called it Noon Tune. <laughs> and uh, we'd, we'd march the troops in to, to the class, and then we'd march the troops out of the class. Right. And uh, it, it was a kind of spit and polish thing. Now, were you stationed there the whole time you were in the Air Force? I thought I was going to go somewhere. I was the only person in the trombone section that stayed the full four years. So what is one of your favorite performances that you did in your career? Well, let me put it this way. One of the things we did in in the Shepherd Air Force Base, that band played a lot of rodeo parades. Every little town in North Texas and all of Oklahoma uh, has a rodeo. Mm-hmm. And they would call and get the band there because oftentimes that's the only band that was there because the kids were out of school during the summer. So we'd march the rodeo parade here and there. And I have laughed because I've been probably in every small town in, in North Texas for their rodeo parades. But you ask about my favorite. We were fortunate enough in, in uh, my time there. That's when the moon landings were taking place. Apollo 11, which was the first ones to go to the moon and walk on the moon, they came back and we were the designated band to play for their return at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. And uh, that was kind of fun. But we also did the return of Apollo 13. That's the one that was the aborted mission. They they blew up an oxygen tank or something on the spacecraft, and we weren't sure whether they were going to come back alive or not. So we had rehearsed marching slow, because that's not something you normally do, and playing the, the sad marching music and the drums had to be draped in black and all that sort of thing if they didn't make it. Mm-hmm. But they made it, so it was a joyous thing. It was a high point. We've played for governors, uh, uh, various officials and things of that nature. All okay. of it was good. All of it was good. Yeah. Well, Dave, I enjoyed getting to know what you did in the service, and I want to thank you for your time in the service and serving your country. And... Uh, Hope to see you soon on the risers with the VM. Hope we can get back on it. I know. I'm here visiting with Clark McGee, and we're going to talk about his military service and the years that he spent serving our country. So I know you were in the staff judge advocate's office, so tell me a little bit about that, how you got into it. 
just uh, at 30 years of age, decided in 1990 to go expand my cultural horizons and, and join the Army. Uh, I picked JAG as my MOS. And crew told me that, of course, I had in order to get JAG, I had to go airborne. Well, after I'd asked the whole class, after learning our AIT, if they were all ready to go to jump school, they looked at me like I was crazy. So at that point, I realized my my recruiter lied to me. You know, yeah. No. So anyway, I did JAG. I did. I enjoyed that. Learned, you know, just everything from dis, you know, from involuntary separations from the military to courts martial. And we did powers of attorney and wills, good mm-hmm. stuff. And then uh, I got an opportunity three years into that to actually go into the 82nd Airborne All American Chorus. Well, I know to go through training for that is really tough, that it's a high percentage that don't make it. So how was that for you going through that basic training to do that? You know, at 30, it was I was one of the older ones, mm-hmm. although there were four older than me, but most of them were right out of high school, you know, or in their early 20s. Um, I, I'm glad I did it that way. I had more, a little more maturity and never got really into any trouble that they found out about anyway. Yeah. Uh, no, it was challenging. Jump school was definitely a challenge um, back in the day. But, you know, now I got to wear that maroon beret, and it was really cool to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of separate yourself from the average Joe. Being an elite force, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you were overseas for quite a few years. Tell me a little bit about that. I joined the Army just in time to get all my training out before I was shipped to the Gulf War mm. back in September of 1990. And got to spend eight glorious months over the sandbox over there. And uh, through my 23 years in the Army, I did Baghdad, uh, Sadr City, two or three times in Afghanistan, three times. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of lose count. Um, yeah. Kuwait, just Korea, I did a year gig there. Yeah. But uh, I definitely learned to speak a little bit of Pashto. <laughs> okay, how uh, you met your wife in Turkey, right? So, how were you? Were you stationed in Turkey? No, I was actually working as a justice advisor after I had retired from the army with the State Department. Uh, well, I retired from the army, but I was working with the State Department as a justice advisor over in Bagram, Afghanistan, prosecuting the bad guys to put the roadside bombs in. Right. And uh, I had a friend who, a workmate who, who was leaving. His intermission was before mine, and. He was from Fort Worth, but didn't know where he was going to live or work. So I offered him my home there in Fort Hood uh, just to use until he could figure out what he wanted to do. And he and his Turkish wife uh, took me up on it. And then she said, well, I happen to have a friend that he needs to meet after she found out I was single. And uh, so I met Gunul via Skype back in late 2013. Mm-hmm. And we corresponded for several months before my end of mission with the Law and Order Task Force I was doing over there. And fast forward five years after I'd moved up here, shortly after I'd moved up here, I'd asked, I wonder if she's still single. And she was. So we started corresponding. And then uh, I flew over there three times within a year. I flew to Turkey three times and she flew here three times. And uh, we decided we'd make it work. So we got married last November. That's very yeah, cool. Yeah, that's the date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's cool. Yeah. It's, Well, Clark, it's been fun talking with you, and I just want to say thank you for your service. Thank you for yours, Frank. Yeah, we both enjoyed it, didn't we? We did. All right, good talking with you. Thanks. You bet.
That's the American Armed Forces Medley, arranged for us by Jim Clancy and done by the Vocal Majority. We've been talking with Frank Eastman and some of our members who have served in the military. And Frank, there's one that I would like to uh, mention specifically and tell his story, and that's Jim Patterson. He sang with us for 34 years and earned nine gold medals. And Jim is 98 years young. He is part of, without a doubt, the greatest generation. He enlisted in the Army Air Corps right out of college toward the end of World War II, and he was a B-24 bomber pilot attached to the 2nd Photo Reconnaissance Squadron, 13th Air Force, and stationed in the Philippines. Now, his B-24 bomber was specially outfitted in the Bombay with a large high-resolution camera, and he and his crew flew to Borneo and back on reconnaissance missions. They had no fighter escort, just one plane over the Pacific Ocean, he said he felt like a farmer plowing a field, flying back and forth over the island in rows taking photographs. And they logged over 300 hours of flight time, 75% of which was over the ocean. Jim Patterson is truly an American hero. We are so proud to call him friend. Jim, we thank you for your service and wish you a speedy recovery from his uh, recent operation. Now, to get back to some more interviews with Frank, who you got? I'm visiting with Tony Stafford today, a longtime Vocal Majority member who joined the Corps back in 1999. Tony is a veteran who was a member of the U.S. Navy. So, Tony, tell me how you came to enlist in the Navy. I knew I really wasn't going to go to college, and um, I had studied nuclear power while working uh, on a debate project. and. I was looking at some brochures and I found the Navy Nuclear Power Program and the Navy Submarine Service and the two of those together and I said, wow, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. So that was the program I enlisted under. Okay. So where did you go to basic training for that? Boot camp was in Great Lakes, Okay. which was handy for the family being in Indiana. Mm -hmm. After boot camp, uh, where did you go from there? I was in uh, boot camp in Great Lakes and I stayed at Great Lakes for Machinist Mate A School. Um, I stayed there until uh, it was time to transfer to Orlando for Nuclear Power School. Okay. After Orlando went to nuclear prototype training I was in uh, Boston Spa, New York, that's north of Schenectady and uh, that took from September 79 till July of 81 when I finally transferred to my first submarine. Okay. So you were in submarines. Can you tell me a little bit about what you did in the submarine? As a machinist mate, I'm responsible for, in the reactor plan operation, for the, the hydraulic systems, the fluid systems, all the pumps that make up the reactor plant and the steam plant and all of its support systems. Okay. When you went out, were you usually underwater all the time or what? The longest, I was on a fast attack. Now, okay. boomers, ballistic missile subs, they have two crews, and they're normally out for three months at a time. Fast attack, we're in for a week, out for a week, in for a weekend, out for two weeks. Very ever-changing schedule. Um, the longest I ever went without sunlight was 35 days. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was a long time. Yeah. So did you enjoy your time in the service doing that? I loved it. Um, people say, oh, you get claustrophobic. You're too busy to get claustrophobic. I Besides, see. you're six hours on watch, 12 hours off, or six and 18 if you're four section. Uh, but during your time off, you have preventive maintenance, you have corrective maintenance, things break. You right. have training, you have to do your laundry, you eat, you sleep, you clean. So uh, 
if you're not already claustrophobic, you don't develop it because you're just too darn busy I see. to think about it. Did they have movies? Could you watch a movie on? When I first started, we we had TVs uh-huh. for when we were in port, raise the antenna, pick up local stations, and somebody said, "We have a TV. Why don't we play movies on it?" So they bought video players, and the Navy, in their infinite wisdom, wanting to save space, they bought Beta. <laughs> because the tapes were smaller than VHS, right? Which, with the same, are the movies we used to have were those large reel-to-reel movies, and you're talking about a three-reel in the box that would take a three-reel movie. You could put twenty cassettes, right. so we had a much broader selection of movies while we were at sea. Uh-huh. So uh, there was a committee that picked the schedule for the month for the nightly movie. So you were in submarines the whole time you were in the Navy, right? My entire time was submarines. Okay. How long were you actually in? Um, my career was September, uh, September 7th, 1979 to November 6th, 1987. Well, I just want to thank you for your time in the service and thank for you. helping protect our liberty through your eight years, almost eight years in the service, and enjoyed talking with you, and uh, happy 4th of July. Thanks. Same to you. I'm sitting here with Joe Frazier, a longtime barbershopper, and he joined the vocal majority in 1985, became the chapter president in 88, won several gold medals with us. But Joe is unique. Yeah, he won seven gold medals, in fact. He was unique as a military member because he served in two services uh, of the armed forces. So, Joe, tell me how you got started back in 1951. I graduated from high school. I had no real prospects for college because I just couldn't afford to go. Uh, but the recruiter said the magic words, GI Bill. So, and you know, back then patriotism was at a was at a, a, a high mark. So all my friends were enlisting, and so did I. I enlisted the Air Force uh, and stayed in until 1955, where I was released from active duty and went to college. Uh, and later on to graduate school. Mm-hmm. All right, after graduate school, I know you went into the seminary and then enlisted in the Navy. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, actually in the middle of graduate school, okay. um, I took a long, a long look at, the, at the, uh, what they call the chaplain probationary program in the Navy, where you could be, uh, where you could, would be, we granted a reserve commission. And if you finished seminary and, and finished all the other requirements, you would be invited to accept a reserve commission in the chaplain corps, which I did, and you could request active duty, which I did. And so I came on active duty uh, in 1963 as a Navy chaplain and served until 1966 when my reserve contract was up. Tried the civilian sector, uh, but uh, during the Vietnam recall, was invited back into the, the Navy and accepted a return to active service and stayed in the service, uh, transferring later on to a regular commission until 1985. Okay, so how many total years of service did you have? Altogether, uh, for, for uh, retirement purposes, uh, uh, actually 27 years, 10 months, and 18 days. <laughs> but who's counting? But who's counting? <laughs> That's almost 28 years. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate your uh, talking with me for a little while, and thank you for your service. And we'll see you uh, around the old barbershop pole sometime. Absolutely, Frank. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.
Thanks, Frank. That's really amazing to think that our vocal majority guys have had such a diverse background serving in the military. Who you got coming up next? I'm sitting here visiting with Mike Johnson, MJ, as you guys in the Corps know him. Mike was in the Army for about seven years, and he was a West Point grad. So we want to talk a little bit. Mike, tell me about how you were appointed to West Point and about your plebe year. The way it worked was I just submitted my paperwork and I got a competitive nomination. And uh, what happens is a, a congressman or a senator can take and say, this is the guy, or they can say, here's 10 people you pick. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the guys that was in this group of 10 and I got a com- what they call the competitive nomination because they had a spot and they thought that what I had was going to work. So they used me as one of those spots. That's what happened. Then plebe year was an interesting experience. My class started out with 1,395 people. When we went from... Beast Barracks, which was the first summer into our regular year, we were down to less than 1,250 people. So we lost a couple hundred that summer. In Mm -hmm. fact, one guy, he got off the bus. He was a football player. They started barking at him. He got right back on the bus and laughed. (laughs) But the first year was an interesting experience, although for me it wasn't any different than being at home, really. Um, in fact, one night when we were sitting there talking in the room, uh, the tactical officer came by and was listening outside the door, and he heard me say to the guys who were in the room, this is no different than being at home. <laughs> Ooh, how did he take that? <laughs> he thought that, that was a funny thing. He thought, this guy's really understands what's going on because some of the people didn't have any clue as to what it was really like to be at West Point. Yeah. So I know you went to Ranger School. You did that when? Your junior year? Yeah, I went to Ranger School while I was still going to the academy. Between our sophomore and junior year, we were allowed to go to a school and there were 26 of us that got to go to ranger school if we wanted to. And uh, the reason I went to ranger school then was, for me, it was in the summer. If I'd gone to ranger school after I graduated, it would have been in January, (laughs) which would not have been a good deal. No. So after you graduated, you came out as a second lieutenant. Uh, Where did you go into the Army then? I graduated. I went to Fort... Leonard Wood, Missouri, of all places. I actually picked Fort Leonard Wood because the University of Missouri Rolla was right down the street and they had what they called an on-campus program where you could get your master's degree. So I went and got my degree at night while I was serving during the day and those two things happened at the same time so that when I... uh, finished my commitment to West Point. I also finished the commitment for my master's degree. That worked out pretty good for me. Yeah. So, okay, I also know that you were a paratrooper, so tell me a little bit about that. One of the schools I went to after I graduated was the paratrooper school in in Fort Benning, Georgia. 
And I did that in November and December of 78. What was interesting about that is that I was what they call the leg ranger. There aren't very many of those around. When I went to Fort Belvoir to do their airborne school, there were a couple guys that were on the cadre, and they were asking me questions because I had a ranger tab on. And they said, uh, we're thinking about going to ranger school. What's it like? Blah, blah, blah. So I got a chance to talk to a lot of cadre at the airborne school while I was there because I was a leg ranger at the time. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I know you served overseas in Korea. How long were you there, and, and what were you doing there? I was in Korea for 13 months. I went there as a promotable uh, first lieutenant, and for the first six months, I was the uh, executive officer of a bridge company. And for the second six months, I, I then got promoted to captain, and I was the battalion maintenance officer for the for the battalion, and mm-hmm. I did that for another seven months, and then I came back. They asked me at the time, they said, uh, would you stay and be the bridge company commander? And I said, I don't think my wife would like that, and I came back home. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I certainly enjoyed talking with you, and I want to thank you for your service, and uh, we'll see you on the risers when we get back together. Hey, sounds like a deal. Okay, see ya. Bye. Thanks, Frank. We hope you've enjoyed this look at some of the members of the vocal majority and their service to our country on this 4th of July. To close, we have the words to the Pledge of Allegiance, set to music by Jim Clancy, combined with Lee Greenwood's great patriotic anthem, God Bless the USA. Thank you for listening. Oh